like that request. Um, in case you all didn't hear, Debbie over there said blessed and highly favored. Is that what she said? Yeah. Yeah, I like that response. Usually people just say, good. Or they don't answer at all and they just say, how are you back? Which I used to do that in my life and then I realized that answer makes no sense. So I stopped doing it. Um, so this morning, we are not in John chapter 8. <laughs> we are in John chapter 9. So if you, want to <laughs> if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 9, I'm going to grab this real quick. And before you panic, I'm only using it shortly. But I am going to need it for just a moment. <sighs> and... I'm going to, you see, this is how you know David's better at talking into the void than I am, because he would have already had like three extra stories while he was erasing, and I just left negative space. So there you go. Um, the, the differences between us. Anyways, we're going to, right here at the beginning of John chapter 9, we have a particularly interesting story. It's very brief, uh, but it's very, very interesting. And it opens up with Jesus' disciples basically having an argument amongst themselves about what exactly is happening in a blind guy's life. And so right at chapter 9, verse 1, it says, as he passed by, so Jesus, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he has or that he is or was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but, uh, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. And when no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, as one does when you have a conversation about a blind person, and made mud with his saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, which is a very nice way of saying he rubbed spitty mud on his eyes. I... That would be a lovely thing to do. When you're having an argument with somebody to just spit right on him, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm anointing you. <laughs> it's a very convenient out. <laughs> but then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. And we're going to pause there for just a moment. And... The disciples ask a very strange question right off the bat, or at least it's strange to our ears, where they say, hey, Jesus, this guy, and he's probably been there a long time uh, because it was common for beggars. I mean, it's still even common in our current society. Beggars stay where there are people. I mean, they're not, I mean, they might be beggars, but they're not dumb. They understand the law of averages. If I go where there are a lot of people, I can probably get some more things and that's not necessarily a knock on big places. That's just how things work. When you have more people crammed into a tiny space, more people need things. And so 
He is in a common place probably amongst other beggars, but he probably stands out because everybody in the community has known that guy as being the guy who was born blind. He didn't just happen to go blind. He didn't get hit in the head. He didn't go lame from being drafted into the Roman army or something like that. There was no tragic accident that gave him a limp or something. He was just born this way. And so the disciples ask, uh, did he sin to bring that on himself or did his parents? Which is an interesting thing to ask because for us, we're like, okay, what? That makes no sense. But for them, it makes total sense. And why is because for them, this is, they didn't know it at this point, obviously, or else they wouldn't have asked Jesus this way. But at that time, it would have been a common misconception by Jews to think this. And it's because of a passage in Exodus. And I realize now that I have stuck the blackboard. There's no good place for me to put this because if I stick it there, it blocks them off. If I stick it here, it blocks you off. And the blackboard's never been over there. We're not going to test those waters. But here, it's right in the way. So I'm sorry to the people over here. You have the continual short straw with the blackboard. Uh, but it's, it's because of this passage in Exodus where they have this uh, misunderstanding. And it's in chapter 34 where it says this real quick. You don't have to go there because we're only going to be here for just a moment. But it's in chapter 34, I believe, verse... Seven, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations. And this is talking about God and the things he's willing to do. Uh, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children unto the third and even the fourth generations. And so that's why they're thinking this. Because the law clearly says, hey, God is going to hold not just you accountable for your sins, but all the generations after that. And they, there's, and even though we don't have that perception in this culture, we still can kind of meet them where they're at. Because we all have this sort of deep down uh, feeling in us. Uh, some people call it a cosmic karma. We here in the Midwest will just say, what goes around comes around. Right? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is, there goes my notes. It's fine. We're going to, this is what I needed the blackboard for. And then as soon as I'm done, I'm going to put it right back because I've discovered that it's a bane to most people's existence for seeing the screen at least. It's a wonderful blackboard. But there's, a, there's this natural phenomena that happens in nature, right? And uh, I, I've noticed some of my engineering folks are here, so you all are going to love this. It's, it's, and it's, it occurs as a matrix. And if that seems like a big fancy word for you, it's fine. It just means I'm going to make a chart. And it's a fun chart, not a boring one for the people like me. Because I'm not a numbers person, and you, we all know this exists, right? So we're going to have our axes here. And this matrix is what we shall call the fool around and find out matrix. We all know that this exists. So over here is your fooling around matrix. And right down here is your finding out axes. And this works like a scatter chart. And a scatter chart means that the level to which you fool around directly corresponds to the level to which you are going to find out. And we all know how this works. 
So if you're a small child and your parent tells you don't get into the cookies and you get into the cookies anyways, you have fooled around about this much, so you're going to find out about this much. Right about here, right? And this is optimally where you want to be is you don't got to fool around so you don't have to find out, right? But that's not how life works. Sometimes, uh, you know, you... You just, you've, you've accidentally tuned out too many times and don't take out the trash. I'm guilty of that. So I find out about this, this much. And I don't want to find out at all, but I have found out whenever my wife's eyes roll, bad things happen. Okay? Or if you are at work and you keep forgetting to do the thing or you keep doing the thing wrong, you are going to fool around about here and you're going to find out somewhere out there and it just keeps going up and like we get this we get this is natural this is ingrained in us this is part of that uh lovely sort of cosmic karma thing now there's a much better way of describing this and we all kind of know this because we see it in, even in other points of the old testament um if you want to put up the verses uh, from job on the screen for me because in job this guy has all these horrible things happen to him and he keeps saying, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do a single thing wrong. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? And his friends keep insisting, these things don't just happen. Bad things can't just happen. God's in charge of everything. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you must have messed up. So he, and they were saying, remember who that was incorrect ever perished. So who is morally upright that died? Or where were the upright where they were cut off. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. We all kind of have that gut feeling in us that what goes around is going to come around, and if something's bad, that must mean you have brought that on yourself in some sort of fashion. And I think inside of all of us, there's sort of like a warping or twisting of something that's going on. Maybe even not a warping or a twisting. Maybe it's just a hope. Maybe it's just a lingering bit of hope. Because all of us have something in us that uh, philosophers try to call the... Some people call it the natural law. I don't think it's necessarily natural uh, to everything. So I prefer to call it the moral law. And this is actually a really fun thing to do whenever you talk with people because it's, out of everything I've ever talked with people who tell me they don't believe in God, this is the most compelling thing that I, nobody can answer this question for me. And it seems pretty intuitive, but it really, it hangs a lot of people up. And uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this concept. But in general, it's this idea that all people have this in, just instinctual sense of morality in them. There's a difference between goodness, uh, because C.S. Lewis also has a different quote where he says we like to very quickly forget about that morality whenever it's convenient to our ends. We like to forget about it. So I'm not going to say we all have an intrinsic goodness to us, but we all have a sort of sense of morality somewhere inside of us that there are certain things you ought or ought not do in certain settings. And he described it like this. The law of gravity tells you 
what stones do if you drop them, but the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. In other words, when you are dealing with humans, something else comes in above and beyond the actual facts. And we all kind of understand that. I can tell you on paper that you shouldn't hit somebody in the face and you could make some sort of utilitarian argument that it's better for all of us if we just don't go around hitting each other in the face. But it usually doesn't end there. We will say something like, it is wrong to do something violent to another person. And the question is, why? And some people get very offended when you say that. Like, oh, well, how dare you ask me that? How dare you imply having an aimless worldview means that I don't know what the difference between... I'm not, I'm not saying you don't know the difference between right and wrong, so there's no need to get offended. I'm telling you, objectively tell me why violence is wrong whenever everything in nature tells me if I'm violent toward other beings, I'm going to get ahead. And I'm going to spread my genes and all of these wonderful things that me just being a bag of bones would like to do. Why should I avoid any and or all of those urges? What makes that actually wrong? But we know that something deep down inside of us says, don't do those things. And even in the worst of the worst circumstances, like whenever you had somebody like Genghis Khan, who did everything horrible under the sun, he even told his people, you can break whatever rules you want, but you don't break my rules. And you can steal from whoever you want, but you don't steal from each other. And you can kill whoever you want, but you don't kill each other. Even inside of his little group, he understood we have to have some sort of sense of morality in this tiny unit, because if we don't, everything falls apart. So we all sort of have this understanding that we should do the right thing and sometimes we kind of twist what we think the right thing should be based upon what we want. I would say don't uh, hurt people, period, or take their stuff, period. And Genghis Khan was willing to take, you know, shift the rules just a bit to say don't take from each other, but you can take anybody else's stuff. So we can all do that too. But this idea of cosmic karma, if it's not a twisting or warping outright, maybe it's just a lingering hope. Because where you would have morals intrinsically in you, why you would be able to say something is objectively bad, why we can all generally say, if you get reasonable people together, X, Y, and Z are wrong, even if they have totally different worldviews. Not just bad, but come actually objectively wrong for people to do to one another. Uh, then maybe this idea of what goes around comes around is the hope that there's also somehow, some way, some sort of actual cosmic justice. We don't like the idea or the feeling that somebody can do a bad thing and then somehow still get ahead. That irks us. And if you, some of you all, like me, might be very relaxed and just be like, oh, okay, you know, let the world go by and do its thing. Um, but if you don't think you have this bone in your body to desire justice, like some of you might just be very relaxed, non-confrontational, I promise you, you have the justice bone in your body. If you don't think you have it, then let's sit down and watch a movie together, okay? Because I promise you, it'll sneak out of you. If I were to watch another human being get cleaved in half, I would probably like have PTSD and puke and want to cry, and a whole litany of things would happen. But 
when I watched the chiseled jawline of Mel Gibson do it covered in blue paint, and he swings a sword down on somebody who is practicing prima nocta, you go, yes, yes, justice. Or like whenever, you, you don't want to see somebody get harmed or shot, but whenever you watch Bradley Cooper and American Sniper finally get the guy called the Butcher from an impossible distance, you're just like, yes, go America, get the Butcher. We all have that somewhere. No matter how calm and relaxed you are, you've got something in you that makes you understand that there's something just about badness meeting badness. But we know that's not necessarily how the world works. And uh, part of the reason why I say that this is a clear misinterpretation of Exodus and they just didn't understand it at that point was because there are other passages in the Bible that if the disciples and the Jews had really been weighing everything together in their totality, they would have understood. That's not quite how things work. Because in the book of Proverbs, or not Proverbs, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes, there's already a passage that would seem to contradict this idea. It's in chapter 8, and it's at verse 14. And Solomon, this is the wisest guy who's ever lived aside from Jesus, so I'm going to assume he knows what he's talking about. Where he says, There is vanity that takes place on the earth. And the proper word for vanity probably should be something like smoke, something fluttery, something useless. So there's meaninglessness that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteousness. And I said that this is also meaningless. And so the ESV can be kind of wordy. And so Solomon, the wisest guy who's ever lived, is saying, I find it completely and utterly perplexing, and it totally throws off my entire sense of justice and meaning whenever I watch good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And this was all several centuries before Jesus ever came around. This is a pretty natural phenomena. I mean, the Jews try very hard to follow the law and every bad thing you could possibly imagine happened to them. So you would think it would be right at the forefront of their mind to not think this way, but they're stuck in this paradigm of if you do something bad or if something bad is happening to you, clearly it's because God thinks you earned it and you had it coming. And yet Jesus looks at this situation and just says, actually... He was born blind for a purpose. Which is an incredibly intriguing thing to say. Because we don't actually know how old this guy is, but we can assume he's been around for at least like maybe a couple of decades. And everybody his whole life has looked at him like something is wrong with you. You or somebody in your life has sinned. And actually, doing a bunch of retroactive research, um, uh, scientists and geneticists have found out that some of these old-fashioned cases like this, of people who are born with these strange things from, from birth, actually probably had to do with common untreated diseases that were passed on in utero. And blindness happened to be a common one that resulted from uh, un prolonged untreated STDs. And so it would make sense of, oh... Your parent had a bit of a reputation, 
and an untreated symptom. And now God is taking it out on you for being, and you are born blind because he's cursing all of your generations. And Jesus is saying that this guy's familial circumstances, regardless of if his, his parents had some sort of STD or some other chronic sickness from a lifestyle choice that then affected their child in utero, or, or if it just sort of happened. Because sometimes these things just happen. There are genetic anomalies that just unfortunately happen in life. Regardless of whatever caused this guy's blindness, Jesus is saying God has made him blind for a purpose, and it's not because of his sin. He didn't do anything. I mean, none of us are perfect, so he's done something. But he didn't do anything in the sense to earn this. Actually, this guy was born blind because God was wanting to show his glory through him. And he does this very strange thing to us. But it was common back in the Second Temple era and around this time of the world to think that um, there was something medicinally healing about fluids out of somebody's body because that they bring you life. I mean, that's, we kind of understand that, that you have fluid in you and it's good that it's in there and if it comes out, you die. And so there's also this idea of, of just, just the soil and holy areas having power too. And so as to why Jesus made this specific decision, we don't really know. It's anybody's guess, but they do seem to take hold of common uh, therapeutic and medicinal thoughts during his time. And it's also just, it's worth pointing out that Jesus never really heals any two people the same way. And because some of you all might be wondering, why on earth does Jesus spit on some guy's eyes? Here's, he never heals any two people the same way. And the best, like I said, this is pure speculation, but I actually like this. This is worth kind of chewing over and thinking about. Uh, there was a guy who proposed, and he's a much smarter guy than me. He's saying, what if maybe Jesus never heals any two people the same way? Because if you look at the problem of Judaism, it was all highly ritualistic. If I do this specific process, then God must do this specific good thing to me. And if Jesus never does any miraculous thing the same way twice, they have no reason to think that any particular ritual or action is what makes him godly, but rather he just kind of has to be holy in and of himself. And to me, that's a pretty good line of reasoning. And I also think it would be kind of funny to watch a whole bunch of people wonder to themselves for the rest of the day if they can heal things by spitting on each other. <laughs> Some dude who was standing on the sidewalk probably tried it later that day. I don't know. But, uh, so we don't know fully why Jesus did it this way, but he heals the guy. And this is another one of those points of, of tension for us, just like the, the sense of internal morality that we have and a hope for eternal justice. Uh, yes, here Jesus says, God has done this thing in this person's life for this specific moment in time so that I can reveal my glory to people. And so now we have to deal with this whole new level of tension with that. And I'm going to tell you up front before I even talk about this, I don't know. And nobody knows, and I wish we did, because I wish I could give you some profound thing that would give you ultimate comfort in any circumstance, but I don't know. And that's, did, is God literally doing every little possible thing to you in your life? Did he give you the sniffles and the sneezes two weeks ago? 
Did he literally put a $5 bill on the sidewalk for you to pick up? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, or does life just sort of happen sometimes and bad things just happen sometimes? And the strange thing is, is that the, you get comfort out of either one. I know some people who get immense deep comfort, and I get it, out of just saying God is sovereign over literally everything. I don't understand it, but I trust his reasoning. And if he did it, then I'm going to trust it, even if it hurts. That's a perfectly, I can see how that's comforting to you. And I don't think that's a wrong way to look at it. And then there's the other end of the boat that's saying, we live in a fallen and imperfect world, and regardless of whatever happens to me, I know that at the end of the day, if I can just tr live by the Spirit and live well, then th that I can share in these sufferings with Jesus, all things will be made right, and all things will be good. And that's, I'm not saying that's wrong either. Either one can bring comfort. To think that no matter what life just happens to throw at me, I can power through it. Or to think that God literally brought it to my doorstep because he intends to bring me through it. And he intended me for this exact thing in life. I, I can't tell you. And the thing is that God never specifically answers that question. Because if we look back at Job, the entire time Job keeps asking God, Hey God, why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? And the only, thing, the only two things very clearly that happen in Job that we can see are, A, God did not directly do those things to him. But we still have the tension because God didn't stop it. And then even at the end of all of it, whenever Job says, why did you do this to me? Which seems to be a pretty good, straightforward question. God doesn't bother to answer that question. He just reminds Job of who he is and what he's capable of. And somehow at the end of it, that's good enough for Job to be reminded about who God is. And to not know. And so I wish I could answer for you why bad things happen to good people. Or why good things happen to bad people. And I know that there has to be some sort of union of these two things of that we live in a fallen world and so God's good intent isn't what we see around us. But all at the same time, God makes it very clear that he's sovereign over everything and that he's working all things out for good for those who love him. And we just, for better or worse, have to live in that tension and trust him based off of who he is. And so whenever Jesus says something that, like, this guy was born blind for this moment in time, maybe we stop trying to completely understand all the logistics of what that might possibly mean and just understand that Jesus showed his goodness and his mercy to this person. And it radically transformed his life. Because this guy goes and washes in the pool, just like Jesus instructed him. And everybody knows exactly who this guy is. He's probably been begging for the better part of to like, he might have been begging for at least like 15 years at this point, something like that. Everybody knows who he is. And so whenever he, after he gets done washing, he's just coming back from the pool. This large public communal mitzvah. It's like it's a large public uh, ritual bathing pool, the Pool of Siloam is. And it's in a different part of the district. It's not immediately next to the temple like the other ritual bathings were. But you needed to have some place in your part of town where you could bathe. So they turned this big pool that at one point was a strategic water reserve for times of war. 
in Jerusalem has now been turned into a public ritual cleansing place. And so he's there, he washes his eyes off, and suddenly every, and he's walking around town, and people keep stopping and asking him, you're the guy who was born blind, right? And he just says, yeah, you're not blind anymore. He says, I know, some guy named Jesus did it. Well, where is the guy? And the, the, we stop at verse 12 where he just says, I, I don't know. He just left. He put some stuff on my eyes. He probably didn't know what he stuck on his eyes. He was blind at the time. I just, I felt some schmutz on my face. He told me to go wash in the pool. And now suddenly I can see, which here's the thing. I've never brought somebody back from blindness, but at the, you know, it doesn't say that Jesus did or didn't take him to the pool or have somebody take him to the pool, but like, I figured you probably need to be, if you somehow bring somebody's sight back, you are not Jesus. Be there with them for whenever they finally see things for the first time, because that's probably a pretty big experience and they might need some help. Because there was probably a scene at the pool whenever somebody who's never seen anything their entire life suddenly starts seeing things. If I saw a human being for the first time never knowing what they looked like, I would probably have a pretty strange reaction. So there's probably a bit of a commotion and an uproar. But the main thing we need to take away from the whole situation is that this guy's entire identity was once his blindness. And that's the only thing people knew him by. Was his reputation for being blind was his reputation for the fact that his parents did some sort of screw-up. And so because his parents did some sort of screw-up, he's a screw-up and God wants him to be a screw-up for the whole rest of his life. And suddenly, he's not. And the only thing that's different from yesterday and today are the fact that he met Jesus. Is the fact that he met Jesus. That was not a plural sentence. And that should speak something deeply to us. That suddenly, from just interacting with Jesus, this guy's identity completely shifts from the cosmic screw-up who will always be blind, and God wants you to be blind, to suddenly being a guy that brought God glory from just being in the right place and Jesus having compassion on him. He didn't do anything, he didn't do anything to earn that. He just happened to be in his normal spot, and Jesus walked by. He didn't do anything. He didn't do any ritual cleansings. He didn't do any prayers. He didn't do any incense. He didn't sacrifice an animal. He had no money. He was probably dirty as all get out. So maybe he needed the bath for more than one reason. And suddenly his whole identity is now the guy who's been healed. And the only response he has was, I met Jesus. And that's something that can actually happen for all of us. Because we all have one particular identity, one thing that makes us us, you know, or at least a group of things that make you you, and everybody knows that. But if suddenly in your life everything changes, and you have a complete 360, and the only thing you have left to tell people is, I don't know, but I met Jesus, then that seems to be an awful lot like a sign from God. And there are millions of those stories throughout human history of people from different points on the scatter chart, all over the scatter chart, people who are all the way in the upper right or people who maybe only ever reached in the cookie jar so they're as low as they can possibly get. 
People from all over the fool around find out matrix from different degrees of badness will have miraculous changes in who they are. And the only response they'll have for you is that I met Jesus. So if you've got something particularly bad in your life clinging to you and you're trying to figure things out, or maybe you've just got a particular set of habits that just you can't let go of, like you've got some sort of thorn in your side, I'm not saying things are going to get fixed tomorrow, but what I am saying is that millions of people for the last couple thousand years have been saying their whole life was transformed after they interacted with Jesus. So if you still haven't tried at this point, what have you got to lose? And if you're a good person, which I'm certain you all are, that you are all in this room good, kind, decent people. And whether, whether you do or don't know him, if something bad is happening to you, uh, and here's the thing, the matrix works for a reason. There are some things in life that happen because you done did it to yourself. Okay, I have multiple scars on the same arm from a child because my parents would keep telling me, don't touch the thing that's several hundred degrees, and I kept touching the things that were several hundred degrees. I done did that to myself. Nobody did that to me but me. Because I kept touching things. I kept touching different kinds of irons. You think after the first time I'd remember? I didn't. It just kept happening. I would not have made it in nature if I didn't have parents. <laughs> Natural selection would not have been kind to me. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of things in life if they're bad, that can happen to you. And they're not happening because God is angry with you. So we need to just get that right on out of your head. And if you don't believe me, because we read that stuff in Exodus, like, no, God said I'm going to punish people. Well, we also have to look in the exact same book of the law where he said that in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is the exact same book of the law. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death because of his own sin. And so Jesus was clearly, and God clearly aren't holding you accountable for the sins of other people. No. The whole familial thing that was talked about in Exodus has a whole set of complications to it that aren't just about God punishing you. And I can unpack those for you at a slightly different time because I wish I had a little bit more time. But the general gist was that this was a different point in Israel's history and families were large compounds. It wasn't just like you and mom, like it wasn't mom, dad, 2.5 kids. It was probably you and your family and several generations, but you have a whole compound of people over here of like 30 people that all live together in a big cluster of tents. And if your family does something, that means like 50 people in the community all got together and conspired to do something that can get us all killed. That probably warrants some sort of corporal, corporate punishment, just on a logistical standpoint. That's probably what that has a lot more to do with, because they were living in a nomadic community built up of a bunch of family compounds. Because you're not going to be punished for something that somebody else did. If you happen to have this particular hereditary tick to you, passed down from your prior generations. God 
you know, you, we don't see people with fetal alcohol syndrome because God is mad at some guy and so he decided to punish a baby. That's not what's going on. That's a fallen world. So there's a certain element of God's good intent isn't always seen because it's a fallen world. So whenever the bad things happen in your life, God isn't angry at you. He's not punishing you. Sickness, death. You didn't bring that on yourself. I mean, we as humanity kind of brought it onto ourselves because of Adam. That's the only time we all share a burden because of one person, one of our ancestors way back when. But the good news about all of that is the same good news that the blind guy had where he said, I met Jesus. Because in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If you think you're under some sort of like curse or spell or lingering punishment for a sin because bad things are happening to you, I need you to understand that Jesus and what he did on the cross breaks every single kind of curse or jinx or hex or whatever it is you might think you have. Because the Bible says somebody's cursed if they're hung on a tree. And so Jesus took on every possible curse by being hung on one. Amen. You don't have to worry about that. Some sort of family woes you have in the past, they're not clinging to you. And even though we can't answer all the questions of why the bad thing is happening to you, and I wish we could, but we can't, Jesus says that you're not being punished because God is angry with you. But also, in, through anything, you can bring God glory, regardless of what it looks like. And that's a hard thing to swallow, because it doesn't tell us exactly what we want to hear, but it's the truth. And if you don't believe me, or if you don't know the examples, then come grab me after the service. I would gladly give you the examples of people that have been in these walls that have had horrible things happen to them, and yet their life still infinitely cries out about who Jesus and God are. And so if you as an individual, if you take nothing away from this morning, just understand God's not angry at you. The bad things in your life aren't happening because God is punishing you. That's not it. He loves you. And everything can change when you meet Jesus. And for all of us, and it's especially, I don't know, um, maybe it's just especially pertinent because there are a lot of people in our congregation right now who are dealing with a lot of really hard and heavy things. And all at the same time, while all that's going on, we have willingly stepped in as a congregation into helping out uh, the unhoused people in our city, the people who probably have the biggest, most awful reputation of, well, you're only there because you're just no good and you deserve to be there and you could pull yourself up if you wanted to. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I don't know. But whenever Jesus stepped into a situation of a guy who by all rights in their society had it coming, the very first response he has is compassion. 
Yes, Jesus knows everything, and so he can dissect everything, but it's the moment that the, the disciples saw a need, their first response was, how do we theologically dissect this? And so they want to stand over here and postulate, what should we do? How should we behave? And Jesus' first response is to heal the guy, not to ask him questions, because I can promise you he was not ritually clean or morally upright, most likely. Because if you had been forced to blindly scrounge around streets your whole life, you probably wouldn't make the most moral decisions either. And Jesus didn't care. He healed him. And so for all of us together, yes, there are those times where maybe we have to look into a situation and say, we can't make this better. Maybe we're not the people to minister to you. And those are hard situations and conversations to be in. But all at the same time, maybe our first disposition shouldn't be one of keeping people at arm's length because we don't know you. We need to vet you. Maybe you brought all of this on yourself. Maybe it should be compassion. And then we wisely discern what we need to do from there. Because everything changes when you meet Jesus. And that's the whole point of the passage. And everything should change when people meet us because we have Christ in us to be a beacon and to let people know God's not angry at you. And yes, sometimes life can happen. And maybe you brought this on yourself. Maybe you didn't. I don't care. Everything changes if you meet Jesus. And so, Scott, if you want to come back up and lead us through a time of response, and if our prayer people want to be around the room, um, if you've got something going on in your life, like I said, maybe a lingering sin habit of this or that, if there's something that you're, that's frightening you, seems too daunting, too big to handle, I don't know, Jesus took care of a guy who was born blind. I think he could probably handle whatever you've got. If you know him and you follow and you're regularly here and your life does speak about Christ and bad things are happening and it makes no sense and it's things are just rough and you just need people that's fine come grab anybody we'll pray with you just remember you didn't do anything wrong God's not angry at you he loves you and even though we can't explain why the bad things are happening, he will work all things out for good. And that there's nothing but life through the one name of Jesus. And that life is available to you. So just do whatever business you need to do with that right now. And just respond to God.